welcome to another episode of Web3 Disruptors. Today, I am thrilled to introduce you to Annalise Osborne. She is a digital asset innovator, board member, speaker, and now author. She is currently finalizing her book, From Hoodies to Suits, awesome name, Innovating Digital Assets in Traditional Finance. She was previously head of institutional for Arca Labs, working with companies to drive blockchain innovation through strategic partnerships and advisory services. Annalise has got over 20 years of experience across finance, credit, real estate, risk, structuring, governance, and digital assets. She currently sits on multiple boards and she holds an MBA from Columbia Business School and a bachelor's in economics. So without further ado, welcome. Really excited to have you, Annalise. Jeanette, thank you so much for having me here today. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. Yeah. So kind of diving in, one of the things that would be really interesting, I think, for our listeners is just to kind of understand a little bit of your journey into this weird and wonderful world of Web3, blockchain, digital assets. So how did you find yourself in the space? Sure. So take me back a little bit. Out of college, I went and worked in Europe, more entrepreneurial. And then I came to business school and I wanted more, more of an institutional corporate world. I went to Moody's and I spent 12 years in commercial real estate running the, the ratings team there, which was very interesting because I love to learn new things, right? And so at the time, it was CMBS and CMBS was really kind of in its growth stage and creating new structures. If you, CMBS also helped reduce the cost of financing. Right, because the banks used to hold a lot of risk on their balance sheet, and CMBS allowed them to spread that risk off as bonds to outside investors, which enabled them to load a, lo- lend at a lower rate. So I loved the idea of how do we create something new. After Moody's, I was really looking for something more entrepreneurial and startup, and I worked to help create new business lines with different companies. And I was I did some board work, and I was asked to join the board of the. Cryptocurrency and Blockchain Regulatory Task Force. And I thought they had the wrong person. I How they got my name or it was recommended to me. And so I kept pushing it off. And then finally, they were very persistent and I sat down with them. But to sit down with them, I had to dive more deeply into what is blockchain. And Bitcoin, I recognized when it came out, I think there's always been an idea of a digital currency. How do we, if you think of credit cards, how do you take that to the next level? So it's kind of a cashless economy. Anyway, just different ideas. So I was always interested in what Bitcoin was, but I hadn't thought of it further than that. And preparing for my meetings with these gentlemen, it was a whole bunch of, to be honest, I watched a whole bunch of YouTubes. There wasn't as many articles because this was back in early 2018, 2017, 18. And I just recognized how beneficial blockchain was for finance. And I assumed it was being done because why would I be helping get this done Obviously, someone else is doing it. And so this is back in 2018. And, and my goal is, let's, is really more institutional digital assets. So how, do, how can we use blockchain for traditional finance? And so, mm. that's, so I'm a little bit less crypto. I do recognize it all ties together. But it's really how can we make Wall Street and capital markets backed by this fantastic technology that is much more efficient and can add value? And so I found, as I was researching more, I found a partner at the time who had a broker dealer and we launched the digital assets side of how can we do this for digital assets. And so this was back in 1819. Like I said, we had a wild ride. We did a number of reg Ds. We were merging. I was at Propeller. We were merging with Fluidity, which was the owner of AirSwap and a consensus 
invest invested in them. So it was kind of in that family. We were working with top banks. They were very interested. We were looking at doing a big round, really focused on doing digital assets and then automated servicing. That was the thought because a lot of servicing, the problems can be taken away if this is more automated. And if it's on chain, it's totally trackable and traceable and programmable. The market fell apart in 2019, but that's how I originally got into the space and I really got the bug. So I then worked on an AI project on a marketplace with machine learning and AI for debt capital markets. And then I came back to the space just because I missed it. And this is really what I wanted to do. So I worked with Arca for 18 months. And now I'm really focused on the book and I'm focused on getting back in the space. But my goal really is also, how do we drive innovation and how can I participate in helping drive innovation? Like, how do we make a difference in the industry? And so that's kind of where I see what I've been working on. And at ARCA, really what my focus was, how do we get institutions to adopt and how do we get them to, how can we create structures with them? in partnership or help them create structures on their own that are generally traditional structures, but using a new technology. I think it's too difficult to go in to try to change a technology and the structure that people don't understand. But working with traditional finance people, if they can recognize, oh, look, we can do a bond this way, or look, if we do this capital raise this way, our investors have the opportunity to trade out. They don't have to hold it for the entirety of the investment. So I think there's a lot of baby, like it's kind of baby steps, I think on some of it until the industries or the different groups, not the industries or the different, I guess, product groups actually work to create something past a proof of concept and recognize that it works to kind of streamline in the industry. But I'm super excited about it. So my next step is really is getting the book out the door, which is really focused on this, which is focused on it's hoodies to suits. And the idea is the innovation really starts with the hoodies. And it's amazing what is created, but in the financial markets, which is highly regulated and has been around for a very long time. I don't think finance is broke. I think it can be upgraded. It's been upgraded since the beginning of time. Finance has been around and it just gets better and better. And I think this is the next iteration. But we need those people that understand deal structures and regulation and why it's created this way to work with the hoodie. So I feel like I'm kind of bridging the gap between the two. And that's what we need to do in the industry to kind of take it up and move it forward. Well, that was a fantastic overview. And the name itself around the book, obviously, I knew the a little bit of the origin because we discussed it, but it's in, intriguing in itself. So when you think about the entirety of what you said, what is the biggest barrier to institutions really kind of adopting this technology, would you say? Oh, that's a loaded question. There's a few steps, right? I think... First is education, and the education is really for everyone. And it's it's understanding what it is and what can be done. And I think that will help everyone not think Bitcoin as blockchain, right? If we recognize there are a number of people at companies, most of the large companies are looking into this now and are different work streams or creating actually hiring heads of innovation or digital assets. But other people in the within the company need to recognize what it is because that makes a difference for their group. This is not, I don't think we are displacing. I recognize some people say this is really focused on, on displacing people or jobs, what have you, but I think it's, we look at it as making it more efficient, right? How do we, so I think one is an education. I think a lot has come up there. There's a lot of, when the industry is running, there's a lot of interoperability issues that need to be worked out to make that happen. 
right? I think we have to, there's multiple different types of blockchains. There's not standards right now, standards as in what technology or what blockchain are we building on? How are we structuring it? What service providers, because we're still using transfer agents, even though the blockchain can act as a transfer agent, but you have to be able to, that has to plug in or the exchange has to be able to plug into these different blockchains. So just for example, I think there's interoperability and that's not even the interoperability within the companies because the companies, if you think working in finance, there's always been within regulation, you actually have to always keep the records. And so some of people's, some banks or some asset managers have very old financial systems internally. Mm -hmm. So those be upgraded and there needs to be a way to talk to each other. So I think that's an issue is interoperability. How do we move that forward? And then the biggest elephant in the room right now in the United States is regulation. And part of that is recognizing, I don't think it's, is this a security or not, though there was just a case on Ripple. Yeah, that was interesting. Right. But I, because we are working within securities, but part of that, there's a lot of outstanding questions on, on, for example, who can custody. Right. And who, and that's one. If I'm an institution, I've been around 100 years. Do I want to let my, and I'm a fiduciary, do I want to put my clients' funds in a startups, like let them custody something? And so I think there's a lot of risk concerns as well that come with that, but also there's, there's regulation that's looking to define that now. And so I think once we have more clarity from a regulatory perspective of how we look at this, I think it will be a bit more clear. Yeah. And so the regulation pieces, we talk about hot buttons, that's kind of, that's one of them. And there's so much kind of noise around it and so many, so many different kind of moving parts and sort of updates that it kind of gives you a bit of whiplash trying to keep up with everything. What, what is your thoughts when you look at the stance perhaps of how the US has handled the topic of regulation within digital assets versus rest of world? And where do you think that kind of positions us as a region? Sure. This is a bit of a loaded question as well. Um, <laughs> I'm just throwing them at you. <laughs> so I am not, but what I, but what I will say that regulators need their own education as well. I think they, they want to help and they want to engage. Regulators have historically been reactive, not proactive. So they're looking and their job is to protect investors. And so generally they're reactive when an investor has been screwed or lost money. How do they, what patches can they put in place that doesn't happen again? So right now we're working with a technology that's very innovative in building. So it's very difficult in a time of innovation. How do you regulate innovation? So if you look at the internet was kind of, was open and not regulated, but the internet's not dealing with security. The mm -hmm. internet's information. So I think that was more privacy oriented. And now we're dealing more with security. So it's heavier regulation because it's financially oriented. If we look, I think we can learn from the different jurisdictions out there that have been a bit more forward friendly with innovation. But it's, I think it's just going to take a while to work things out together. And I would push to not over-regulate initially because mm -hmm. I think paths will work their ways through. Also working with, with traditional financial structures, there are questions about when something is technology or is when is code law or how do we, what do we react to? We look at the, there's a lot of debt products. I'm a big believer in debt being on chain because there's programmable securities. You can pay interest in and out and dividends. You can have conditional if then statements, anything that's an Excel spreadsheet can be coded. And if you think about any of the debt contracts, they're really Excel spreadsheets. There have been a lot of loan, debt products done in Europe. 
Now, generally, even some have been rated, which I worked at a rating agency. I think it's great because it looks at credit and allows an external body that's investing to recognize the risks that are there. But most of them haven't settled on chain. Most of them, I think one has. And they also are mimicked in the paper version as well. So mm-hmm. it's a step forward. And I think that kind of helps. That will help regulators get more comfortable is that what's the backdrop? The backdrop is you fall to paper. But obviously, it's not ideal because there's so much we can do once we actually can do these in digital form. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, so switching gears then to a slightly lighter topic, which is you bringing your book to life. I always, whenever someone is going through and embarking on that process of writing a book and, and kind of publishing it, I think it's an incredible commitment and sort of accomplishment. What, what prompted you to, to write the book? Well, looking around, there's really not any books that are talking about capital markets. They're really talking about crypto, about digital dollar, and there's a few on DeFi, or it's really crypto trading. And so the thought of what we can do and what I've been trying to do for years, and I'll continue along this path, which is making headway, huge headway. You know, you've got Larry Fink out there saying how important blockchain is. You have Goldman, you've got JP Morgan, huge institutions are taking part now. And that's happening more so, I believe, this year. But I, it was actually last December that I decided over the holidays that I wanted to write a book. And this is what I wanted it to be. And so every day I made a... I do a table of contents and do an outline and, and it all was the same. And so then I started kind of building it out. It just takes a while to actually get it approved through a publisher and have that set up. But I'm super passionate about the whole idea and I feel it's, I feel it all makes sense. So looking at kind of from hoodies to suits, I think everybody needs a basic idea of blockchain and Bitcoin, right? That it's not the same thing. However, Bitcoin was monumental and what it came up with and why. Also, I'll say the tone of the book is at the average person, as opposed to it's not too technical. The idea is corporate executives and finance people and really kind of general business people that will understand it, that don't need to have a lot of experience in crypto and understand. It's not about the dynamics and technical aspects of the blockchain. It's really about what is this? How do we get here and what can we do with it? Right. And so... Part of it is understanding why the Bitcoin paper was monumental, what Bitcoin really was and the ideas for it. And then that kind of goes into Ethereum was launched and Ethereum is another blockchain and and then what was created in DeFi. And I think it's important to look at what was created in DeFi. This is kind of more the less, less traditional aspects, but I think we can learn from what was already created in crypto. And if we look at what was created kind of from the DeFi lending, I think there's more or less a banking system that is created through the crypto world. So I think that is interesting. But now let's switch to traditional. So I think we can learn of a lot of the pitfalls that they made, mistakes that what worked and what didn't previously. And then we can build that now within our traditional structures. And so now we can look at who's doing what, right? I think it's important. I don't think everyone recognizes so many institutions are diving into this. Now I eat, sleep, and breathe. So I recognize all the articles that come out, but they're not necessarily always in the Wall Street Journal or in the New York Times Mm -hmm. or where people actually always read it. And so I think it's important to recognize what's being done now or what has been done and then what, what we can do, right? I think there's so much that we can do. And again, this is from a traditional structure. So I have lots of examples. It starts off with 
Zuckerberg, when Zuckerberg always wore a hoodie, right? When he went to talk to Congress, he wore a suit. And it's just, it's kind of a progression of technology if you look at it that way. Mm-hmm. So it's loaded examples and highlights different things that, that will make sense to people. And if we look at kind of where we can go, I do think what I don't really talk about much is how once we have traditional finance, it's going to merge with the, the some of the things that are happening in DeFi we'll be able to do. Like think about how the derivatives market picked up. Right. Think about all these different structures. Even within CMPS, we started to do different structures. There's CDOs, CLOs. So I think there's opportunities, even though people are concerned that it might limit them. Like I know that banks are worried about cash lines because there's different. If you have T plus zero settlement and not T plus two, there's a float there that we're that's disappearing. Right. So I think people will find ways to make up for that. Right. Though there's more liquidity in the system if they can use the money more often, which allows more transactions. I think smaller deals will be able to be done. So I have loads of ideas that I'm sharing about ways that we can use this technology and how it can benefit. I think it's also really interesting to look and important to look at the changing dynamics of this generation. So we have, if you look at finances changed over time, people are afraid of change, I think. But if you look at finance, it's changed over time. And if you look at the generations, the wants of the millennials and Gen Z, and then the upcoming Gen Alpha who are not working yet, but were around. Everyone is born with a supercomputer in their hand. The last two generations were born with a supercomputer in their hand. And then, and the millennials grew up being natively digital, right? They knew, they understood all of this technology was around, which was not around when I was not texting my friends when I was in school, we didn't have phones. But I think that's the mentality of what they're looking for is changing. I think Mm. the mentality, of the way that millennials who will also run the business companies, they'll be the decision makers. Think about it a bit differently. Things should be more, things should be able to be focused on apps. I think you should be able to trade on your phone. I think we can still put on the same protections. I'm not having Mm -hmm. trade securities on their phone. That's not what I'm saying. But I think there should be ways that it can all be in together, right? Mm -hmm. It should be all the user interface set up so nobody knows what is blockchain, but behind is all blockchain. So I think we're going to get to that. And I think we'll get to that with the next generations because of what their wants are. Mm-hmm. Also, if we look at wealth in the world of the United States, it's 50% in institution and 50% family wealth. So that's retail, right? So that's really interesting to think about because the private markets, the only one investing in private generally outside of the ultra high net worth are the institutions. And so the private markets, which are alternative assets, fewer companies today are public. The public companies have dropped significantly. So many more companies are private that have revenues over 100 million. So large companies are staying private. Well, the general population can only invest in the public markets. So they're losing out on a large share of potential investments. And so I think blockchain will be able to open that up as well. Yeah, to democratize it. I have a section on regulation, which I have some wonderful regulatory attorneys who are contributing to just so it's not for me. You'll have examples of things that have come out that have brought up questions. So so that's kind of a generally a gist. But the whole idea is the path forward and how we move. This is kind of what happened. This is where we are now. And this is how we can go forward. Yeah. one. I mean, the book sounds fantastic. It sounds just what's needed. And one of the things that you mentioned really early on is the audience for the book. And you really talked about it being sort of the everyday business person or kind of executive who doesn't need to have that really deep technical knowledge in order for this to 
to kind of make sense and to be kind of a useful guidebook and resource. And I think that's one of the things that is almost a bit of a barrier to entry for people is just exactly how technical the speak is around it, right? And so that to me is one of the things that feels like a huge differentiator on what you've just kind of described. Thank you. So I have a wonderful editor and who is not from the crypto world or blockchain world, digital assets, even fine, I guess has worked in finance, but always asked me to explain more. And our target person is Bob. But would mm-hmm. Bob understand that or how would Bob be able to tell his friend what we're talking about? And so it really helps keep focused. And it really also finds better ways to explain things that I might not be clear in explaining because in my head, I've done this for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So through through the various different episodes of, of the show, we've had various how to do the following things because the women on the show have brought these amazing perspectives and sort of different expertise. And one of the things that when I think about the journey you've just been on is how to be a first time author. So what have you kind of what have you learned on this journey? <laughs> Oh, goodness. I'm happy to talk to anyone that has questions. So I not having done it before, I did not say that there are roadblocks in the way and I just assumed it was going to happen, which I'm really thankful that it did happen. It didn't happen as quickly as I was. I wanted it to because I want everything right away. So it did take some patience, but the adoption of Web3 is patient, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so I just stuck to my guns and I did and I went out there. And honestly, when I didn't know what I was doing, I hired my own editor. To, to review and give me two cents. And also it really helped because that editor, I didn't have to use an agent because she knew what to do and she was mm-hmm. not my agent, but she, but that helped me as well. And so, which is a lot of research putting together. So what you do is generally you come up with your idea and you have to put together a book proposal. Sometimes you write chapters, but in essence, what it is, it's a very detailed outline that mine was like 20 pages of what the book's going to be about. And then you also have to talk about who you are, why this book is important, why you're the person to write it, and why right now is in, right now is the time to do it. So I did all that. And then I have a wonderful publisher, Wiley is my publisher, and I sent it to them and they responded and said, yes, we're interested. And so that's it worked normal. out very well. So yes, so I'm happy to talk to anyone that's interested in <laughs> writing a book. I have not done a fiction book, though I have met a number of people that have. What I haven't done yet is the promotional aspect. And so part of selling a book, which I did not know or think about really, I just really was, I was super passionate about this, getting this book out, is there's a lot of promotion involved. And so I don't love promoting myself as much. I love talking about things, but that's going to be interesting because we're in the business of selling books if you write a book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's um, right. Be that will be a lot of energy and opportunities that I'll be having to find and work out and push myself yeah. in six months' time, probably. Well, I know you haven't done anything formal for the book yet, but just the little teaser that you gave us has been phenomenal and really intriguing. So I think if you're able to kind of speak about it with the same level of passion as you have and clarity that you have now, I think you'll be, I think you'll be just fine with it. <laughs> encourage all the women out there to do something. If you think about it, do it, right? If it's something that you're interested in, because I think a lot of us hold that only just because you'd mentioned women. I think a lot of us are more hesitant. And I say us because I find myself the same way. It's when you walk in a room, make sure to sit at the table, don't sit on the side. And the same when you come up with ideas, why can't I do that too? 
right? And so there aren't a lot of female writers out there, especially in this business genre. And so I encourage people to step up. And so I'm, it's such a perfect segue because as you were, when you started off your introduction today, one of the things you said really resonated and I wrote it down to make sure that I came back to it, which was almost your first foray into this was being drafted into a task force around helpers <laughs> navigate this regulation. And you said something was really interesting. You're like, I think they've got the wrong person. And, and it took me a little while to, to kind of agree to it. And then you talked about, I started watching YouTube videos. And that really reminded me, I think it was Richard Branson that kind of said, say yes, even if you, and then figure out how to do it. And so, so those are the thoughts that went through my head as you were kind of sort of walking Mm -hmm. through your journey there. But I think it's very common for women to to kind of say, actually, I don't think it's I'm the right person for you. And if we were to look at gender stereotypes, it would be probably a very different reaction from a man. What advice would you give women who are almost sort of experiencing imposter syndrome on kind of a, on a frequent basis around doing things for the first time, even if they've got the credentials to sort of back that up? Sure. So I will say on that, For that board, I then recruited two very senior finance men or people in business, men, and I convinced them and they said, okay, you're doing this. Okay, we'll do it. So it's kind of funny that, yes, I totally agree. But that I just, I'm being absolutely transparent when that's what happened. I didn't know enough about it. And I felt I couldn't contribute if I didn't know enough about it. Similar to the technology world, I am not a coder but I recognize the business case and what needs to be done. And part of the idea is, remember, the hoodies are the hoodies and the suits are the suits and we all need to work together. So we all have a part. We also have, there's a lot of organization. There's a lot of marketing. Loads needs to be done. I think everyone has imposter syndrome. I think even the men have it. I think they're better at hiding it. I think they're better at not caring or letting things bother them. I think that we also have to remember in technology, what is fantastic about technology and innovation you have to get different mindsets at the table to innovate, right? Everyone can pull together. You don't want all the same person or the same people that have exactly the same mindset sitting at a table creating something new because it's not going to get enough of traction, right? So I really am a true believer that you need to have people that have all different sorts of backgrounds, which includes men and women into this, especially in this industry, because we're creating something new. And with the imposter syndrome, so when we were creating our first digital asset securities back in 2018, you're mapping out something and then you're talking to the regulators for their approval. No one's done it before. So it's not like you can even turn to someone and ask, how did you do it when you did it? And so a lot of that is believing in yourself and recognizing that if someone needs to do this, why not you? Right. And so even though I don't know everything, I try to find people that can answer my questions. And if they can't answer, be logical, work with lawyers and figure out what can be done. So so I get it. I mean, I feel the same way sometimes. Or I teach a lot of classes too. But what I try to remind myself every time I go in there is that I know more than they know about what I'm talking about. So even if I feel like I don't belong, remember that. So I was actually asked to join a public board when I was much young. (laughs) Sorry, I was less experience than everyone else that was there. They had all been CEOs. I had not been a CEO. I sat down, I re- and being a public board on a public board is reading loads and loads of documents. It's reading all the public filings. It's reading the footnotes. I was so o- not overprepared. I was so prepared. We should all be that prepared. No one in the room had read the footnotes like I had read them. 
So when people ask questions, I could come up with every little detail. I'm also good at remembering numbers. So I could come up with every little detail. So I guess one way to protect yourself from feeling like an imposter is doing your work, being prepared. Yeah. And well, it's interesting that you mentioned the board, the board piece, the episode that we're coming out right before yours is a conversation I had with Debbie Hoffman. And we talked about the, the challenges actually for women to get that first seat on, on a public board. And, and so the, it, I think it's probably worth noting that if you get that opportunity for any women that are in a really s- similar spot and kind of thinking to, to grab it with both hands because it's sort of a bit of a chicken and egg situation, I think, when it comes to, to navigating a spot on a public board that is they they're, there's always that requirement for prior experience and you only get prior experience by getting your first seat on the board. Do you have any advice for women specifically around board readiness and the thing, the steps that they might be able to kind of take to, to kind of prepare themselves or put themselves in a position to be considered? Absolutely. Network. That is like how I think you find opportunities are through networks. And part of the reason it was all guys before is because they would go out for a beer at the bar and say, oh yeah, that's a great person because then they're top of mind. So I think I really think it's important to network and put yourself out there. I actually enjoy, for the most part, I always enjoy networking because I meet people and I learn things from them. And so that's kind of how I look at it. From a readiness perspective, when I was invited to that, I think that was my first invite for a public board. I had not been a CEO. And so I called a bunch of people and created my own board of directors, people that had been CEOs of public companies and that I was close with that could also help me help explain to me what a board was or people that had been on boards before. Now, the world I find is very helpful. And if you people really help each other out, and that's, I would do anything to help people. And I've been very lucky with people helping me. And so I think that was incredibly helpful with having experienced folks give me their advice about doing it. And then once and once you're on one, it's really just, I feel like my boards have been through word of mouth. They have been, I've been recommended by someone that I didn't know was going to recommend me for this position or something could come up in a conversation and they put my name in there. And so I highly recommend doing that. I'm on volunteer boards as well. Not as many because I don't have as much time, but I think that those are good as well. I'm on the board of William and Mary's business school now. And so that is, I'm really big on education and pushing both technology and diversity is also, I think they give you good experience. So I had been on other nonprofit boards prior, but I really think business is its a world in itself. So I don't think you have to be on a nonprofit board to be on a for-profit board. So... I mean, I could talk to you all day and I can't believe that we're almost at time, but you have had this phenomenal career, are incredibly well respected within the space. When we think about the women that might be listening to the show today and thinking about maybe some of their own challenges and how they're trying to sort of navigate careers within digital assets and, and the broader space. What do you think are some of the unique challenges that women face in the space today? And what kind of advice would you give for people that are, are trying to forge their own path forward? I would say sometimes it's hard if you're not in it or you don't know what's available, right? And so if I don't know exactly what jobs there are or what the people are or how I should talk to my boss, that's about networking and creating a support network, right? Mm-hmm. Support groups, people that are 
could be your level, other level, people you just get along with. New York's NYC FinTech Women, I think is a fantastic organization and they are, they're huge and they're in New York. Like there's different mentoring groups, not mentoring, networking groups that you can get together with people. I think that's really helpful. Ask questions. I ask questions all the time. They might seem very basic. I might think I know the answer when I ask it. I just want to hear someone explain it. And am I right? So don't feel dumb asking questions because I, what I find is when I ask a question, even though I think it's basic, other people in the room don't know the answer. And so don't feel bad about doing that. It doesn't mean that you're stupid. It just means that you are paying attention and that you want to dive into it a little bit deeper. So mm-hmm. don't be afraid of us. And then I would, that and networking, I think really make a big difference because what, so I have three boys. When I had my first child, I didn't have any friends that had kids. No one in my office had a kid. None of the women from business school had children at the time. Well, it makes me sound early that I was close <laughs> with. Right. And a lot of people dropped out of the workforce and I was trying to juggle a, I wasn't making that much money. And so I was using more or less most of my money to pay the nanny after taxes. And she was sick one day and I'm trying to bring my kids to daycare because I couldn't not be in the office because it was, there weren't women in the office and the baby threw up all of me in the taxi cab. So then I had to go back and drop the baby. And so I just, I vividly remember this moment. I'm like, all I want to do is say, can you believe this happened? But I can't even tell my colleagues that because they don't want to hear about baby where it's kind of hysterical where I'm literally thrown up and when I'm more <laughs> office, dropping it. So I have to go back. Anyway, so I'm telling you this story because it would have been fantastic just to have a woman's network where I could say, can you believe this happened? And laugh. Mm-hmm. Right? And that you're laughing with people that might have the same thing, but it keeps you in the workforce and it keeps you going forward and you're not alone. Because also what happens is you get more senior or sometimes you might feel alone because there aren't other people like you or be it woman or whoever your age, whatever it is at your company. So it helps to kind of find that within the industry, just so you can exhale or share an experience. Yeah, completely. It's that feeling of isolation and feeling like you're the only when you don't have that connection or that community around you that might have those similar shared experiences. So I think that's, it's great advice. And I appreciate you kind of being so, so candid and sort of thoughtful in what you've shared today. I'm sure there's lots of people that are excited to, to follow your journey and hear more about the book because it comes out. Where can people find you, Annalise, if they want to sort of follow along? What's the best channels? LinkedIn is the best channel. So I wish that I kept Twitter up to date, but I don't. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. You can always send me a note if you're interested. The book will be on shelves in May of next year, which is a long way away, it seems. I'm finishing up the writing right now. And so I'm super excited. And thank you all for listening. I hope it's been helpful. Jeanette, it's been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it too and really excited to to follow along and sort of see how see the book comes to, to life. And for our listeners, we will see you next week for another episode of Web3 Disruptors. Mm-hmm.